Disturbing Interest is a Horrible Histories, Terrible Mysteries podcast. The past, and sometimes the present, are often a bleak place. Listener discretion is advised. If you're a fan of Disturbing Interests, please like and subscribe. And for the love of God, tell a friend about us. Pretend you're a Mormon. Go door to door with the good news of Disturbing Interests. Preach our gospel, brothers and sisters, and non-gender binary siblings, to the world at large. Because remember, with us, you might be disturbed, but you're not alone. Welcome back to Disturbing Interest, everyone. I am Regina King, your evil queen, and sitting in her own lovely house is my ever-beautiful partner. Hello, I am Lynn, your docent of distancing. And darkness. So I've got a couple of stories for you, which, by the way, happy Halloween, dear listeners, those of you out there who are listening. Happy anniversary to friend of the show, Lacey Nishdoom, and her lovely spouse, David. Keep it up. Keep on spousing. Keep on spousing. Oh, what are you drinking today? Oh, well, I believe I have, I don't think I've had this exact one, but I've had this brand on the show before. It is a Pampelone. Pampelone. You have. Pampli, Pamplemousse, not Pamplemousse, and it is a sparkling wine cocktail. And since we're recording this at like just before one o'clock in the afternoon, and I do have some shit to do today, I went with a lighter, smaller, the skinny can. And one that I looked at and I thought, this is not going to suck. So let's do that. It is a, because it's Halloween, it is a blood orange spritz. Ah, 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 ah. And it's a, it has natural flavors of lime, cinchona bitters. That's the shit that goes into tonic water. Mm. I know this because we make our own at home because Wilhelm is weird. And blood orange, or as my friend Jay likes to call it, conflict orange. <laughs> get that on there one day delicately folded delicately folded not just like smash the fuck in there but delicately folded into fine french wine so i think this has got to be better than last week's oh god horror all right here we go it's a good good crisp sound it smells nice it smells refreshing it smells like fruit it does not in any way make me think medication so let's try this that is lovely. It's light. It's citrusy without being like, it tastes like actual orange and not like. Ass? Orange. You, you know how like fruit flavors like orange does not taste like, it tastes a little like orange. Well, technically the candy flavor of orange tastes more correct to what the original flavor of oranges tastes like because oranges aren't a real thing anymore. I mean, this isn't bad. I would, in fact, this is good. I would highly recommend for all of you are getting through the next week needs the Pampelone canned, fizzy, delicious wine spritzer cocktails. 100%. Go, do it. It's good. And if you're not feeling canned wine variety, I actually have a cocktail that I am drinking today. Shit, girl, they have driven you to drink at this point. They That's have. not only really a you thing. No, I do not drink. Everyone who knows me knows that Regina lays off the sauce. But um, today, I, I, yeah, I woke up and said, yeah, they win. My cocktail has three strawberries cut into quarters, five blueberries, and then I take a, a blueberry pressed juice. So it's very blueberry and put, uh, I'm, it's in a highball. So I'm going to say a little under a third of the blueberry 
then I do a third of pineapple juice, and then I fill the rest up with champagne. And that is just nice. delicious. Yeah, that's what I'm drinking right now. It's a good day drinking. I feel like the spritzes are an excellent sort of brunch and day drink thing because, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of stuff that is not the hard stuff. So it's it's a lighter situation. That's my theory anyway. Yeah, we're just lucky that I'm not drinking the hard stuff because that's where I'm at, ladies and gentlemen. Let me let me. Well, first, before I go into my stories, I'd like to give a shout out to a couple of our listeners. First up, I would like to give a shout out to Aaron Wilcox. Aaron found out what happened to the dress of the lone woman. So uh, for all of you who are regular listeners, you will remember my story of Juana Maria, the lone woman. The episode was the better than nothing. It was about the woman who was stranded on the island in California and made this amazing feather dress of cormorant feathers and whale sinew. Apparently, the dress was not lost, but it is in the possession of the Vatican. Okay, they do like some fancy-ass dress there in Town. They do. They really do. So um, she did find that out, and thank you so much for writing in and letting us know. And also, ask our listeners, and we shall receive an answer. Jennifer Muck of Morris, Minnesota, thank you so much for writing in and letting us know what a petty sessions clerk is. Apparently, they would oversee the keeping of the court records for small criminal and civil cases in Ireland. So not as fun as you wanted it to be, but at least now we know. And also, Jennifer gave me a great idea for a story, and I was going to do it. Jennifer, please know I will still at some point do it. Great, great idea. However, a story caught my attention this week, which is what you're going to get, which made me literally go, what the actual fuck? Like, what? That's a thing? That happened? Oh, I have to share this with our people. So they'll be able to be surprised at this jaded time in our history. You know, (laughs) this morning when I woke up, Mal said, hey, did you hear the bad news? And I was like, I don't, what? Maybe. I, at this point, sure. I don't know. It's another day. And then he was like, oh, Sean Connery died. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Really? Another one? But yeah, at this point, who knows? Who knows? I could have heard the bad news. Maybe I am the bad news. I don't know. <laughs> you don't know my life. <laughs> bad news bears. It's the fuckiest timeline. It you is. Know, I, I think at this point, if good news comes up, I'm going to mistrust it. Like, nah, nah. You're just fucking with me, 2020. Right. You're putting it out there to pull that rug out from underneath me. So I've got a couple of stories for you about just happenings in my life over the past couple of weeks. Did you win the lottery? God, I wish. I keep hoping. I I have not bought a lottery ticket for months because why would I see people right now? Why would I? I live in my little house on the hill, and the only people I see are part of my quarantine. That's it. Including Jeff Goldblum. Including Jeff Goldblum. I mean, at this point, you and I should do a social distancing walk through a park or something just because I miss seeing your face. I mean, it's still fairly nice weather out. And I'm like, look, I worked at Pike Place Market for years. So I work in, there's no heat in there. It's like working in a giant concrete meat locker. Yeah. So 
People are like, oh, it's going to be too cold to be outside. I'm like, shut the fuck up. Dude, let me know when. I am down. I am down. I am I am 100% in. If Becky wants to join too, I would be down for that. Okay, we can just walk around in our mucklucks. And mm-hmm. I have seriously got like multiple gear. If you ever need to know how to dress for cold weather and just standing around being miserable for hours at a time, I'm your lady. I can tell you what to do. I have a, I have a wardrobe of Pike Place Market stuff. It's uh, pretty sad. I got a spirit hood and I'm so excited for colder weather. <laughs> for those of you who do not know what a spirit hood is, look them up. They're fucking awesome. Basically, I have a faux fur now with galaxy print inlay and little ears on them. And it makes me so happy. I'm regressing into a 13-year-old girl, and I am perfectly happy with this. I have a coat that looks like I am I cut the, the bottom out of a mummy bag, and I'm just, like, walking around in it. Nice. I look like an obese penguin, and I don't care. It's amazing. Oh, I love it. Okay, so something that happened to Mr. Mao the other week is... He got stuck in the elevator at work. And tell me about this. This is not an okay story. I don't like no, story. no. So fair warning to anyone who has issues with heights or plummeting to your death. If this is a trigger, maybe skip ahead like five minutes. So he was going up his elevator at work and people are like, oh, well, has he stopped taking the elevator since then? Bitch, he works on the 34th floor. No, of course he hasn't. But he had a moment. So he was on this elevator. It gets stuck. It starts making noises. And then it drops him five floors. Four or five floors. But it drops him. It knocked him so hard he landed on his ass. And he was still stuck in the elevator. And it was still making noises. Like, it was so bad that the building contacted him later. And they were like, we're so sorry. Here's this gift card to this place. And there was no gift card in there, which I found fucking hilarious. But, you know. Gift card to a new underwear shop? Because I would legitimately need new underwear. after. Right? So he's texting me during this. After he stood back up and he's still stuck in the elevator, he was like, hey, want to let you know this is going on. I love you. He became very stoic. Yes, he's he's very calm sometimes. And it really amazes me. Became very stoic. And I was just like, oh, dear God, please don't leave me. And I'm talking to Dave from the previously mentioned Lacey Nishtum and David. Um, I'm talking to David and I just start crying because I'm thinking, oh my God, the love of my life, the Bonnie to my Clyde is is going to plummet to his death. What am I going to do? Because I cannot live without this man. And yeah, so that was horrible, but he's okay. But the best part about that story is when he got out and he told his boss what happened, he pulled a Remus Lupin on him and he was like, okay, are you okay? Okay, I understand. Okay, here, Take this piece of chocolate, sit down, eat it. It'll help you feel better. He straight out Remus Lupin Tim. Here, eat this. You'll feel better. There is some science to that. Theobromine in the chocolate does indeed kind of have that like endorphin love chemical. So good, good thinking. Good thinking. Mm-hmm. It worked. I would need like a Whitman sampler, but like a good one, not the Whitman sampler, but like a C's. That's a C's. 
something with a, a Godiva. There you go. I would need the Godiva sampler, like mm. several of those to feel better after that. Because that is some Final Destination shit right there. And it no, is. It no. really is. So that's one story for you. And then the other story, I think you will just really appreciate one because you were eating toast this morning and I was like, I got a toast related story for you, which I can't say often. So, you know, toast, toast related story. So, you know, I can't eat grains, can't eat grains, can't eat bread. So they've been coming out with this grainless breads that some of them are really, really good, including this one brand called Base Culture which is grainless and tastes like regular bread. And they make this uh, cinnamon raisin bread that I've really been enjoying. Cool. Gravy, right? Sure. When I was a very, very wee child, apparently I could not say toast. And I know this because my mother and my sister had told me about it when I was very, very wee, the Hulk and my mom. And uh, I don't remember this. But they told me, and I believe them. Apparently, what I said instead of toast was burst. 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 That's right. And so the other day, my allergies are bothering me really bad. I had a rough night's sleep. I got up. My brain wasn't functioning. And I guess I regressed straight back to fucking infancy. Because I was getting out the cinnamon raisin bread, making my coffee, and I thought to myself, mmm, burst. Burst. Yeah. So I thought you would appreciate that. I, I regressed to childhood, and now every time I grab toast, I think to myself, mmm, burst, because of that moment the other day. So now I'm drinking. That's the kind of week, couple of weeks I've had. Well, you have an absolutely horrific story to bring us today, don't you? I have something depressing, well, sort of depressing. I mean, basically, I like to think of it as the early modern incel and um, how he made life terrible for so many people across across Europe. So shall we shall we begin this my my tale of 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 woe and persecution? Fuck yes. All right. So the term witch hunts comes up a lot during this whole election season, which, to be honest, seems like it's been lasting my entire life and then some. Mm. And ironically, uh, it's usually some shitty rich white guy wailing about it being done to him when any sort of investigation into his possible misdeeds happens, you know, like roping people, raping people in department stores, you know, things like that. It's a witch hunt! It's a witch hunt! Privilege! So the irony is, in historical reality, the witches that were actually hunted were often, usually women, though not always, hashtag not always lady witches, Um, but usually these people were also not in positions of power and authority, but rather annoyed people in positions of power and authority, so have at them. And they were usually just being persecuted horribly for just trying to live their lives in a time when anybody who strayed even a skosh outside the behavioral norms would often pay horrific prices for doing that with their lives. Mm-hmm. So today, since I'm all about the feel-bad stories of horrible injustice of late, I am going to talk a little bit about what actual witch hunts were like, and in particular, about one really popular book that set the stage for some of the most awful persecutions that the world has ever known. 
because I'm a party girl like that. You you are bringing the fun. I mean, this really does seem to be like more my kind of story. But hey, I'm here for it. Happy fucking Halloween. Yeah, that's where we're at. Okay, so there are definitely accounts throughout even the earliest human history that's been recorded of people being punished for like sorcery or black magic. And this has happened across all, almost like all cultures, right? Mm-hmm. But particular witch hunts that I'm going to talk about today were the classic burn them at the stake, toss them in the river, see if they float, kind of European style, early modern persecution. People say, oh, medieval. Technically, no, these are early modern. The medieval period didn't actually do a whole lot of burning and torturing. It was early modern because like witch fever really started to grip Europe from about the 14th century through the 18th century. And, and this is the time when, it, when witchcraft really got bound up in the idea that witches and Satan were BFFs. I mean, if you're going to be a witch, you better have a BFF that's Satan. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, prior to that, sorcery wasn't necessarily like Bible oriented. You know what I mean? It wasn't in that kind of epic level of the church getting involved. Hey, girl, I hear you're a witch. We should go out clubbing sometimes. Satan dials you up. Hey, pretty much. That's uh, that's essentially what at this time people were like, this is how witches happen. So not only were witches plotting evil deeds and like making crops wither and the cow's milk dry up and just generally spreading the pestilence. I mean, serious, if you were a witch, though, why would that be what you go after? Fuck that one particular cow right over there. I don't like the way that sheep's looking at me. Kazam. Yeah. But not only were they doing the shit, they were also doing it by command of the devil. So the devil has decided that particular cow over there just needs to go. Fuck that particular cow right over there. I am the devil. He insulted me. He real petty. He's a really petty dude. So the idea that witches would make pacts with Beelzebub for power or wealth or that they would be able to command demons really took hold during this time period. And popular notions of what witches could get up to included a lot of sex stuff where the covens would ride through the air at night often straddling broomsticks, if you see what I'm saying, all naked and greased up with the fat of unbaptized babies. I mean, same. Yeah, right? And they would tend sabbats with Satan and his demon pals, where they'd all kind of bone down with the devil. Yeah. It was like a a demonic key party, essentially, right? (laughs) And it was, yeah, I mean, they really, they turned the sex dial up to 11. Um, And it was also popularly believed that witches could shapeshift into all kinds of like freaky ass animals. And you could often also identify them because they kept animal familiars like cats or toads or Bill and Ted around to do their bidding. You mean like Rocky? He would be the worst satanic familiar. He really would. He'd be like, hi, I'm here. I, I am Satsuma. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Bill and Ted are not biddable in, in any degree. Oh, good news, though. Just as an aside, we had to take Ted in to get pruned. Ted was growing a boob, as rats sometimes do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not cancer. Came right out. He got to spend the night last night all hopped up on goofballs and, like, with severe munchies. Today, he's back with his boys like nothing ever happened. So, Can you imagine being a rat and having that happen? You're like, oh, God, I'm taking from my brothers and my home. 
Where is my little basket? Where is my wheel? Oh, what the fuck are they doing to me? Sleep. Ow, my side hurts. But the room is spinning. I think he thinks he was abducted by aliens. But because it's Ted and no brain, no effect, he does not give a shit. But anyway, just in case anybody was worried about Bill and Ted. I was. They're doing well. Yeah, so familiars were definitely a thing that would indicate that you might be a witch. And then, God forbid that you have a birthmark or like maybe an extra nipple or a toe because that was a witch mark. And it would definitely indicate that you were a servant of the dark forces who could apparently suckle demons on any of your funky moles or whatnot. Yeah. That's I mean, that's what you do on a funky mole. And I learned a cool medical term for additional non-functional nipples and things like that. What is it? Supernumerary pap. <laughs> it would be super. Supernumerary pap. I like want to totally make a band just called Supernumerary Pap. Anyway, these are, this is, I, God bless the internet for this sort of thing. But like all of this cavorting with the devil and so on was known as maleficum or malevolent sorcery. See, you say malevolent sorcery. What I hear is a real good night for Maleficent. Good time. Yeah, no, but no, this was the concept of maleficum, which is kind of a, also a dirty word. I mean, this whole thing that's real, like, but that was really like, this is a new concept, a stupid, terrible concept, but like a new concept that like the Inquisition and everybody just kind of ran with, right? Mm-hmm. And it just, this kind of made its way really into even the not churchy laws of the day. So like, if you felt your neighbor might be kind of shifty, right? Or that there was a run of bad luck suddenly hitting your little hamlet, all manner of accusations could then fall under the rubric of maleficum. And the most common occurrences that would engender suspicion of this thing, of maleficum, were things like crops and livestock failing to thrive, or like a run of really bad weather, diseases of all kinds, miscarriages or a lack of fertility, or sexual dysfunction, families turning against one another, marital discord. I mean, even local politics going awry were considered possibly due to maleficum. I mean, if I could, I would totally cast a spell and make Bernie Sanders fucking president. That that would be Maleficum. But it would be for the better of mankind. If it was Maleficum, it wouldn't be, I'm going to make Bernie president. It would be, I'm going to make Donald Trump get eaten by bears. Oh, that would work too. Yeah, it would have to be like the naughty kind of thing. So what I'm hearing is I would be terrible at being a witch. Yeah, you have to just go for the evil, not the good. Look at it this way. Crops die, it's a witch. The cows die, it's a witch. Your kids die. It's a witch. It's raining and it should be sunny because I'm having a picnic today. It's a witch. It's sunny when it should be raining and my crops are dry. It's a witch. Udders ran dry. Fuck that particular cow right over there. Yeah, can't get a boner. That's a witch. Wife's being an egg. That's a witch. Plague, pimples on your ass. Witch. Don't like the mayor. Witch. I mean, if you can blame it on a witch, you should definitely blame it on a witch. I'm just going to start blaming everything on a witch. So there you go. Maybe elevator witches are a thing in your spouse's building. Maybe. So it's witches. Toast burns, witches. So there you go. So essentially blaming everything from hangnails to tuberculosis on witches is all fine and good. 
But what legally could be done about all this wanton sorcery, just like witching up the place left and right? Historically, most of the church's legal attacks on people for practicing witchcraft in the Middle Ages was generally more about quashing heretics and heretical thought. But then things got more local and personal as time went on, and by around like 1300 through about 1330, witch trials started to become much more common. And until the late 1400s, they kind of tended to sort of pop up in bursts around Europe. Kind mm, of burst. Burst. And not the good toast kind. Well, toasting people, yes, but not delicious bread, no. But it kind of, it was like a witch fever, like, it would just pop up and die down, just depending on the mood or interest of a given town's political or church leaders, right? But then, like the kindling beneath a nice, big witch-burning pyre, things really got hot for heretic hunting, with the 1486 publication of a little book titled The Malleus Maleficarum, or The Hammer of Witches. And it's extremely well-known. Like, I would say if somebody knows the name of, say, name me a spooky book, people will either say the Necronomicon or the Malleus Maleficarum. Those are kind of the two two of the biggies. The go-tos. Yes. And this, this book, the Malleus Maleficarum, was written by an early modern incel, that's what I'm going to call him, by the name of Heinrich Kramer, or if you'd rather use his fancy Latin version of his name, Henricus Institor. Excuse me? Who who gives out these names exactly? I don't I don't know. I think that's just that. Like, did he have to sign up, get in the line? I think that was originally his AOL screen name. Uh I mean it was a long time ago, this tracks. And this was like essentially the D D monster manual of witches, if you will. It's Wikipedia for Zealot. <laughs> And this book equates sorcery with heresy, which was pretty much the highest crime for the church, and which was almost always punishable by death, particularly after torture and by being burned alive at the stake. So it really turned up the volume on penalties for witchcraft. So what's in the book? What's in the book? Well, right off the bat, old Heinrich takes a page from He-Man woman hater Paul from the Bible and pretty much lays out in the very first section the justification that he just had to write this book about what a bunch of demon-humping heretical hoe-bags the ladies can be, and because the land is clearly beset with the dark shadows of, could it be Satan? And somebody, I say somebody, has to think of the children and come along to put these bitches back in their place. Demon-humping heretical hoe-bags. I mean, I am paraphrasing this a lot, but that is, that's pretty much the gist, right? He's a selfless helper who is going to purify the world by setting out the rules by which witches, I mean bitches, I mean witches, can be exterminated. I mean, that, that seems like a super healthy coping mechanism, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So next, the book goes on to show its papal bona fides. It reproduces a papal bull or a public decree, not like a holy cow with like a hat. Fuck that one particular cow right there. One in the cool Pope hat. But this papal bull that Pope Innocent VIII wrote that acknowledges that witches do in fact exist 
and that they are up to no good. You know, anyone who tries to sell innocence that hard, I have a hard time believing. It's his whole name. He's innocent. Pope innocent. Yeah. So now old Heinrich, he's being a little shady by including this in the front of the book where the casual reader would just assume that the Pope himself wrote this like an introduction or endorsement of the Malleus Malficarum, when in fact, this particular papal bull was written in 1484, two full years before the Malleus was even finished. It was just kind of tacked on later, like, see, see? Yeah, he's in agreement. Now, Heinrich does get, theoretically anyway, all the doctors of theology at the University of Cologne to sign on to the next part that they are in total agreement with the notion that witches are real and a big problem and that this is a totally fine textbook on how to deal with them. Or does he? Because there's some speculation that this endorsement is actually a forgery, given that the same institution later denounced Kramer as a creepy loon. Oh, nice. So, uh, who knows? And then there's also a second author listed as writing the Malleus, Jacob Sprenger. However, whether he actually had anything to do with its creation is also a matter of great historical debate among scholars. His name was not added to the book's authorship until 1519, 33 years after its first publication, and 24 years after Springer fucking died. Okay? Okay. Moreover, while they were both alive, Springer regularly did the equivalent of rolling his eyes and saying, this fucking guy, at Kramer. You know, he, he was like, dude, no, slow your roll, freaky. So why would he have authored a book with this guy? It seems plausible that he didn't, but that Kramer did his best to associate the book with Springer to lend it more credence because Springer had a very good uh, reputation as a reasonable man and a good inquisitor. Because inquisitioning, in inquisiting, inquiring, beating people up for not liking the church. Yep, there you go. Right? So once all the endorsements and such are out of the way, the book then dives into the meat of the matter. It asserts that there are three elements necessary for witchcraft to happen. The witch's evil intentions, the help of the devil, and the permission of God. Are, are we sure we don't need a cow, one particular cow to fuck? I think we're pretty done with cows so far. But Okay. But that last part might seem weird. Like if God is anti-evil, why would he be all cool, cool, curse your neighbors with wild abandon, solid plan, go for it? I mean, you gotta mix things up. He's God. He's gotta keep it real. Okay, so that's to essentially set it up that God would never permit an actually innocent person to be convicted of witchcraft. So it gave anyone using the methods and reasoning of this book total carte blanche to torture the shit out of anyone they were accusing because of course there's no way that they could accidentally burn an innocent woman at the stake. You know, plausible deniability in human barbecuing. Hmm. Right? So you suddenly become infallible as the judge, jury, and executioner. Hmm. So one thing I know about men is that they are fallible. Saying that you become infallible for anything is just a bad idea. Yeah, no. You always should have somebody going, hey, you really think so? But no, apparently this, this little clause made it all okay. So the Malleus Maleficarum is divided into three parts. 
The first section looks at the theory of witchcraft and basically comes to the conclusion that witchcraft has to be real because the devil is real. And the devil is into making pacts with people to perform acts of witchcraft, so, ipso facto, witches defo real. And bad, so burn them. Okay? Yeah. Okay. I didn't say this was a good book. It was a popular book. Uh, so section two gets into- So like Twilight. So very like Twilight. Yes, exactly like Twilight. With less sparkle, though. So section two gets into the practical examples of real cases where people were accused of witchcraft. It describes how witches cast spells, make their devil packs, go down to ye old animal shelter to adopt their familiars, etc., etc., right? And then section three is the how-to portion of the manual. You know, inquisition, inquisition, inquisiting for dummies, if you will, that describes how to prosecute a suspected witch. It's a literal step-by-step explanation of how to conduct a witch trial how to interrogate and torture a confession out of the accused, how to get people to testify against the witch, and how to pass sentence. A fun fact from this section is that women who did not break down in tears during their trials were automatically deemed to be witches and convicted. Oh, for fuck's sake. Right. I have to say, though, that that little bit does remind me of how you know, when you're in looking at various true crime documentaries and people are talking about that, you have people kind of convicting suspects in the court of public opinion for them uh, not being freaked out or appropriately upset during things like 911 calls or questioning. So speaking of that, have you seen the documentary on Netflix called Who Killed Little Gregory? I did not. That sounds fun. I I don't think I have ever told somebody who can't hear me because they are in a television to go fuck themselves so hard in oh, my yeah. life. There is one specific reporter and he knows what he did. He can go fuck himself. So what you're basically saying is people being judgy assholes, kind of modern and early modern. Yeah, it, it's a continuous trait of humanity, is what I'm saying. So let's talk about these methods of questioning. I mean, <clears throat> torture. I mean, questioning that the malleus suggests using to determine the guilt of the accused. So, like with the police today, the inquisitors who were questioning the women could totally lie out of their asses. Can lie. In fact, it's recommended by the malleus. Just lie. Totally lie. In fact, I'll let the book speak for itself on just how best to get a confession out of someone. And when the implements of torture have been prepared, the judge, both in person and through other good men zealous in the faith, tries to persuade the prisoner to confess the truth freely. But if he will not confess, he bid attendants to make the prisoner fast to the strapado or some other implement of torture. The attendants obey forthwith, yet with feigned agitation. Then, at the prayer of some of those present, the prisoner is loosed again and is taken aside and once more persuaded to confess, being led to believe that he will, in that case, not be put to death. So, essentially, say, look, we were gonna strap you to the rack and beat the hell out of you, but the good cop over here said, oh, no, 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 don't do it. So what we're gonna need you to do now is just tell us 
that that you're a witch and you'll be fine. It'll be cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, if they don't do that because they're not a witch, well, then after all of that, then you put them in one of the implements of torture. Often, as mentioned before, the strapado, which is essentially when you tie the prisoners' hands behind their backs and then you suspend them from the shoulders by a rope so that their shoulders dislocate. And it is recommended that a defendant not be held in that strapado position for more than, say, oh, I don't know, an hour, because they can actually then die of positional asphyxia in that method. Cool, cool, cool. And then the ducking stool was also another option, which was essentially the old tiny way to waterboard someone by tying them to a chair that was then submerged in water until the person strapped to the chair thought they were going to drown. Interesting aside, the ducking stool actually started out life as the cucking stool, and it was just a chair that a woman who was accused of being a scold or immodest would be tied up to and left out in public for people to mock. What? Basically peeing and pooping herself because she was essentially trapped there for like a day or more. Yeah. Great. Aren't people cool? Isn't that neat? Uh, one of the other ways that you could get a, a confession is that the prisoner could be stretched on a rack or have their fingers twisted by thumb screws or have any number of really sick, fucked up, painful and degrading things done to their bodies until they confess to pretty much anything to make this torture stop. But you'll be super pleased to know that after someone confessed under torture, the torture was stopped for the day and the prisoner was taken away from the torture chamber and then asked again to repeat the confession. So if they recanted, they were actually allowed to rest up like overnight or for a couple days to get their strength back so that they could be fresh horses for a second round of new kinds of torture in the next day or so. Great. Yeah. That's just lovely. To quote the book, but if the prisoner will not confess the truth satisfactorily, other sorts of tortures must be placed before him, with the statement that unless he will confess the truth, he must endure these also. But if not even thus he can be brought into terror and to the truth, then the next day, or the next but one, is to be set for a continuation of the tortures, not a repetition, for it must not be repeated unless new evidence is produced. The judge must then address the... So, yes. why don't they just have, you know what, this person's guilty no matter what, and you can just fucking torture them until they admit it. And that's basically what they're doing. Yeah. yeah they, need, they need plausible deniability. Well, he said he was a witch. She said she was a witch. So we had to do it. We had, it wasn't just me getting my, my rocks off watching somebody like, scream in agony no no it's it's for the truth baby for the truth yeah Mm. it's essentially a nice orderly system set up to traumatize and wound the shit out of people to get them to say what you want them to so you feel justified in torturing them and killing them nifty told you this was a fun story Mm -hmm. so what things might someone be tortured into confessing that proved they were witches rather than just people who generally wished someone ill, right, on someone that had wronged them. Well, the Malleus laid out a very specific concept of sorcery that linked witchcraft to the devil and diabolic forces in a way that it really had not been. To be guilty of this new breed of witchcraft, the accused had to have done one or more of these activities. 
they had to have entered into a pact with the devil, had sexy times with the devil or a demon representative of the devil in case the devil was just busy washing his hair that day. They had to have flown through the air to attend a Sabbath or an assembly that Satan presided over where typically there was like a big old orgy demonic key party and maybe even some pampered chef stuff going on afterwards, right? Or you could have practiced maleficent magic, basically curses and stuff. And finally, slaughtering babies. So this is your basic QAnon style shit, really, but like prior to the invention of pizza or ping pong. Very into slaughtering the babies. And why would you slaughter babies? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, what else are you going to do with a baby? You're just going to slaughter them. That's what they're there for. Well, it's their delicious fat. The delicious baby fat. The fat of the babies, particularly unbaptized babies. You wanted to get them, like, fresh out of the, the womb oven, right? So you could murder them and then render their fat to make this flying ointment that you could then put on your body that would allow you to fly through the air to get to Satan's key party, right? This makes all of the sense. Is that why I can't fly? I'm not slaughtering enough babies and reducing them to ointment? Yeah. That Well, now you know. And just who was likely to be engaging in these lewd and diabolical baby slaughtering activities? Me. Yeah, exactly. Women. I mean, bitches love Satan, am I right? Yep. So Kramer states flat out that women are far more susceptible to the temptations of the devil because of the manifold weaknesses of their gender. Cool, cool. Less faithful, more carnal. I mean, we are the daughters of Eve, right? <sighs> yeah, no deep sighs. So men could be witches. Yes, they could. And men definitely were on record as being tried, tortured, and executed for witchcraft. They did not escape this shit. I'm just saying, if it was Eve that started this whole mess with the apple, then why the fuck do men have Adam's apples in their lying throats? That that is a that is a very good question. So men though, I have to, you know, I'm not hashtag not just women or whatever. Men did in fact end up getting on the wrong end of a ducking stool or or a flaming um pile of sticks. Because they were probably brown or gay. The gay part for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh but, you know, again, a lot of this was a way, like, I kind of like, oh, oh, Friedrich has some good stuff. Mm, I kind of like Friedrich's stuff. Well, you know, maybe Friedrich, he is a witch. Yeah, yeah. And that's how you get Friedrich's stuff. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was still generally less prevalent for men to end up on the wrong side of a witch trial. And the reasoning given for why dudes went all in on Satan wasn't that they wanted to get down with his sexy Satan bone. But it was a lust for power rather than just, you know, lust. Hey, okay? Satan is an equal opportunity lover. I don't know what they're saying, but I mean. Have you seen Lucifer? Have you seen that show? Like, everyone I know, even people that are like, oh, I'm like Kinsey One, are like, mm, I don't know. He's kind of, yeah. For him, yeah. For him, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Right. And, you know, gendered witch persecution did vary from region to region throughout Europe. So though Germany went full misogyny, places like Iceland kind of did the opposite. And 90% of the people who were accused there of witchcraft were men, weirdly enough. And because stuff can always get worse, even children were accused of witchcraft and torture. Oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah. So kids, kids too. 
but generally women, teens and adult women. Yeah. So now that we've talked much trash about the book, let's go all in on its author, shall we? So Heinrich Kramer was born sometime around 1430 in Schlettstadt, which is now Celestat in Alsace, which is that part of France that is also Germany, but also not. But maybe Switzerland, but not really. Kind of a whole screen door of Europe area. Hybrid. We're, we're going to call it a hybrid. Yes. An equal opportunity lover. It, it is the Satan corner of Europe. Exactly. It's, it's bi-statual. Pan-statual. I was about to say. <laughs> Pan-statual. So Kramer joined the Dominican order as a boy. And he was pretty good at being a, a Dominican in that he was eventually appointed prior of the Dominican house in Schlettstadt as a very young man. So he became prefect of Slytherin at a young age. Hey, don't knock Slytherin. We get enough bad rap. We like power. Sometime around 1474, he was appointed inquisitor for the Tyrol, Salzburg, Bohemia, and Moravia. And he was so good at running around doing anti-witch stuff and basically yelling at people from the pulpit that he became the right-hand man to the Archbishop of Salzburg. And he ended up in Innsbruck as part of a group of inquisitors who were bringing witches to justice and essentially immediately started a beef with a local woman who did not care for his particular brand of creepy bullshit. And by the end of it, 13 citizens ended up on trial for witchcraft. Fuck. Yeah. Excuse me, my cat is trying to break shit and throw it off my desk. Moxie, do you want to be tried as a witch? Oh, you want you want to murder my hair tie. Here you go. She wants to murder children and bathe in their fat. Well, he's, but she's starting out with a hair tie. <laughs> Start small because there's no children in the house. So. You got to work your way up. Right? So the situation was this. Helena Schubrin, I'm going to go with Schubrin, I think is her pronunciation, wife of Sebastian Schubrin, was a prosperous Austrian burgher in the town of Innsbruck. And she caught the eye of old Heinrich. What the fuck is a burger? A burger is like a citizen. Oh, burger, not like sandwich. No, no, burger. Okay. Townsman. Like, he's doing well. Like, he's probably, I bet he owned a buggy dealership. There you go, a cart dealership. Kind of like that, right? All right. So she was described, Helena, as an aggressive, independent woman who was not afraid to speak her mind. I like her already. Same. Yeah, she's welcome to come on the podcast anytime from beyond the grave. I hope she does. And she allegedly had passed this puffed up asshole Kramer in the street, rolled her eyes at hard at him, spat on the ground, and cursed him out publicly, saying, Fie on you, you bad monk. May the falling evil take you. I like her. Yep. Yeah. Uh, she also declined to attend Kramer's sermons and encouraged her friends and neighbors to also boycott his bullshit. In fact, she even interrupted one of his fire and brimstone spewing speeches in the town square by loudly proclaiming that she believed Institoris, remember that's Kramer's rap name, to be an evil man in league with the devil. So of course he's going to totally accuse her of witchcraft. So Helena was accused of having used evil magic to curse murder the knight Jorg Spice. So who the hell is, I really tried to find out more about Jorg Spice and came up pretty blank. 
So I really want to know more about Jorg Spice. Jorg. Is he the one forgotten Spice girl? He's the yes, he's the Austrian Spice. Yes, so he tastes like Spetzel and nutmeg. I guess tastes like sauerkraut. I don't know. Uh, but you know, Jorg had apparently been unwell, and I guess his doctor, so they say, had advised him to stop visiting Helena to avoid being killed. So they wrote what? the doctor into this. I don't know. None of this makes actual sense, right? So what the hell that has to do with anything based in reality, I have no idea. But essentially, Kramer used this as a pretext to get his vengeance on Helena for not being into him. He put her and six other women on trial for this alleged witch-on-night murder. And several other witnesses then pig-piled on this opportunity to get revenge on Helena and the other accused women, and it just went, like, full-on crucible, right? Now, happily for Helena and her posse, the main authorities in the area at this point thought the idea of witches cavorting with the devil was kind of silly, and they acquitted most of the women, including Helena, and gave, at most, mild penances to the few that were found guilty of offending. No torturing, no burning, nothing terrible. Nothing, you know, nothing out of the ordinary other than, you know, maybe try to be nicer to the, to the asshole. I don't know. And during this whole process, Kramer was all about talking up the lurid tales of demon sex that he was certain Helena had to be having. I mean, he went the full penthouse letter column, describing all manner of orgies and kinky shit that surely had to have been taking place all over Innsbruck. I have been to Innsbruck. It is the least kinky town. Like, it's, do 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 we're the Tyrol. I mean, it's charming, right? It's not like, mount chicka row row. It is not. You know, I stand by the thought process that if people were actually getting the freaky deaky on in a consensual, non-harmful way with other adults more, and it was accepted more, we wouldn't have these problems. We would not have, no. It would be a much better place. So... It basically made the authorities, all this sex talk, especially the local bishop, real uncomfortable. And they essentially told Kramer, knock it off, take your heavy breathing, porno weirdo, and get the fuck out, right? So Kramer flounced back to Cologne and began writing his little spank bank book of how to punish witches, and thus was the Malleus Maleficarum born. Uh, so basically, this guy just had a kink and fucking ran with it yes, and dished it out in a book and people and took it as gospel. He was like evil Chuck Tingle. Evil Chuck Tingle. Because Chuck Tingle is an American treasure. Yeah, agreed. The authorities at the university in Cologne also read his little book. And at first, they kind of condemned it, saying that the procedures suggested within were both unethical and illegal and of unsound doctrine. Which was great, but slowly over time, more and more high-ranking members of the church started to kind of agree with the book, and it became the ecclesiastical version of a runaway bestseller. And Kramer rose further up the ranks of the Inquisition and eventually died in 1505, all smug and creepy with the blood of hundreds on him, having spread torture and murder in the name of shutting up bitches across Europe and eventually even overseas to the New World. How lovely. And yeah, there's a ton more I could go into about the various hideous flavors of witch persecution that sprouted up around the world, including the horrible witch finder general in England. But this has been a depressing enough story and a depressing enough timeline that I figured we'd just cover this ground and stop there. Happy Halloween. Well, thank you for that. That was... That was awesome. That was 
just horrible. That was my kind of jam right there. Yeah. Well, I am going to bring you something far more bizarre. I hope in a more chipper way, because that's just sad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My story is short today, and I'm just going to fly right through it for the sake of time. I am bringing you the story of Nub City, Florida, and decades of insurance fraud. Oh, God. I'm so glad you're running with this one. Yes. Yes. Nub City. Nub City, also known as Vernon. God bless you, Florida. You are the geographic gift that just keeps on giving. Really are. You really are, Florida. Thank you. Thank you for this. Never change. Well, maybe do change, but yeah. I don't know about you, but when I hear the phrase, the golden age of, the next word to follow in my mind is not Florida. For me, Hollywood is like the auto-populate there. The golden age of Hollywood. I don't think the golden age of the current running joke of the entire United States. And seriously, no offense, no shade to our Florida listeners. I love you. We love you all and your state. It's beautiful. Your cousins live there. So, you know. See, however, anyone who has Googled Florida man and their birth date knows exactly what I'm talking about. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, seriously, we'll wait. Go do it. Do it. Have you done it? For our international listeners, I'm so sorry for whatever you found with that search. It's not representative of the whole state. I swear it's not. And in fact, all of our states are just that fucked up. It's just different privacy laws make Florida easy to pick on. And there's something about warm weather that, I don't know, seems to lead to bad judgment. Oh, yeah. Well, although, you know, again, some real dumb shit happens in the frozen areas. So, yeah, I don't know, maybe... Extremes of temperature lead to some extremes of behavior. I just think dumb shit happens all over. It's just that they have dumb shit and alligator. Yeah, they do. Well, today's story is going to take you back to the golden age of Florida, the 1950s. The 50s in Florida, it was hopping. It had a huge population boom with over a million people moving there between 1949 and 1950. In fact, after the Second World War ended, The most desirable places to live to Americans when they were polled were California and Florida, both lands of sun and smiles. They seemed exotic with movie stars in California and gators and amusement parks in Florida. Kind of the same thing, thrills and lizards in both places. Everybody just wanted that sweet, sweet vitamin D from the sun and that sweet, sweet vitamin C from the citrus. That's right. The glitz and the glamour with Miami Beach and the thrill of underwater pictures coming from the coral reefs with the advent of the underwater camera. These things were capitalized on by the media and the film industries. The wishy-washy mermaids! Yes, exactly! It makes sense that a country just dragging itself out of the sheer horror of the Holocaust would look at these idyllic playgrounds when they would escape into a movie or a magazine and find it a refreshing change. The thing is... None of our stories take place in a happy setting. And just because one area of a state is doing well doesn't mean there isn't another area that is struggling to survive in pure desperation. So I'm bringing you to Vernon, Florida today. Or like I said, the nickname of Nub City. Oh, God, this is beautiful. Can't wait. That just rolls well, doesn't it? Nub City. (sighs) It just rolls off the tongue. Now, those of you who live in Vernon 
please don't come at me. Don't at me. I am not in any way, shape, or form poking fun at your plight or the allegations that have been laid at your feet, nor am I accusing you of anything. Because at this point in time, everything I'm about to tell you is going to be drizzled heavily, heavily in our favorite word, which is... Allegedly! Allegedly! That's right, we haven't used it for a while, but here we are. Here we are, back here. That's because uh, Heinrich Institoris can't come back from the grave and witch uh, sue us, so we could totally not use it in the last story. Well, also, he full-on signed his name on that shit and signed it with a kiss. This town, which is smaller than five square miles, Fernan sits on Holmes Creek and is a former shipping route for gopher tortoiseshell imports to nearby Bonifay. In the 50s, when tortoiseshell fell out of fashion, there wasn't anything else that stepped in to fill the economic void, leaving the small town that ranged between 600 to 800 people desperate. As we already know, desperation leads to some pretty messed up things, and the occurrences over the next several years in Vernon definitely qualify as messed up it falls right into that fucking zone that we love to swim in zone. fun fact between the late 1950s and early 1960s two-thirds of all of the insurance accident claims for loss of limb in the united states was in the florida panhandle with the majority being centralized in vernon that's right was it the alligators Well, two-thirds of all claimed lost limbs in the U.S. in that time frame of about three years is linked to one of the largest and most horrific acts of alleged, alleged insurance fraud that we've ever heard of. Alleged because no one was ever convicted of the crime of insurance fraud, though cases were taken to court to, because to put it very simply, No one was about to believe that someone would intentionally dismember themselves for a payout between $3,000 to $300,000. I did look that up, by the way, and that would be between $27,018.69 and $2,701,868.51 in today's money. See, now I'm doing like actuarial studies on what exactly individual body parts on my body might be worth to me. I did the same thing. What am I willing to lose for how much money? Like, like toes? I'm cool with toes. I could get rid of some toes for some cash. I mean, I don't care if you're desperate or not. $2 million is a lot of money. With $2 million, I could pay someone else to wear a ring and pretend to be my toe all day long. Right. However, once the insurance claims began to exceed $100,000 or over $900,000 in today's money, the insurance companies thought it might be prudent to investigate where, why there was such a high loss of limbs in Vernon. I assume it's the tortoises. They're mad at being like robbed of their shells and they bite. I mean, army of tortoises coming back for revenge makes perfect sense. Those toes are going down, motherfucker. By the 60s, at least 50 of the residents of the town of 700 people were amputees. Oh, Jesus. The Continental National American Insurance Group, 
say that five times fast, sent insurance investigator Joseph Healy out to inspect the claims, and he surmised his opinion of the situation in Vernon was such. Again, his words, not mine. Vernon's second largest occupation was watching hound dogs mating in the town square. Its largest was self-mutilation for monetary gain. Wow, fuck Disney. Let's go to Vernon. Let's go watch dogs hump in the town square in Vernon. Chop off our arms. That sounds fantastic. Let's go. I didn't realize that watching hound dogs mate paid anywhere outside of the dog breeding community, but you learn something new every day. Wow. Dang. So Healy claimed that two signs of insurance fraud with personal injury in the area were obvious. The first being that the injured would allegedly choose the body part that would affect them the least. For example, their left hand if they were right-handed. The second, it would occur within one group of socially connected people, with the payouts becoming increasingly larger. Oh, so like it was sort of like a Ponzi scheme, kind of. A Ponzi scheme of limbs. Yeah, like no, amputational Amway. Wow, like LuLaRoe, except instead of leggings, it was just legs. Wow. (laughs) So in some cases, the affected in the town suffered two terrible accidents, causing them to be double amputees. God, do they get twice? Yeah. Because they would insure one body part and they would lose it. Then they would insure another body part later on and they would have another accident happen and lose it. And so here's this alleged insurance fraud and they have lost their limbs. Dude, this is the worst town industry ever. (laughs) Alleged. So dusting off my soapbox here because... You know, it always has time to accumulate dust. I'm sure it would have to be a specific type of societal mentality of helping oneself born of the region and personal beliefs to not lean on others when you need a hand. Yes, the pun was intentional. Yeah, you need a hand. Okay, anyway. Or if we as a collective society are just so numb that we do not see the need to help our fellow citizens. Maybe that's where this came about from. But for fuck's sake, no one should ever have to literally cut off a limb to survive, with the exception of Bear Trap or that one fucked up case of the person who got stuck in the Grand Canyon who had to cut off their own arm to survive. Other than those situations, basic survival should not be dependent of maiming oneself. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah, don't know. No, at this point in our species evolution, I think we should be able to collectively agree that we would be better from all of our citizens being cared for and given equal rights and opportunities. However, living as an opinionated woman who does a podcast centered around the heights of humanity's horrors, I know the truth. I know the truth. So just putting that soapbox back. Thought I'd say something though, because. Are you a communist Biden? I, I mean, yes. I'm not a communist. Yeah, the, the rugged individualism shit that seems to make America crazy really fucking needs to go. I'm, I'm all for, like, let's all be good at personal responsibility. But for fuck's sake, you know, just take the hand. Take the help. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Seriously. Don't, don't lose the hand. 
take the hand. So what kinds of claims were there, you might be asking? I mean, you can only have so many feet run over in before the town is gifted with steel-toed boots. Were, were gators implicated? That's what I want to know. I mean, if it was Florida, I would totally implicate a gator. But former insurance agent L.W. Birdshaw told the St. Petersburg Times in 1982 that his list of policyholders included, but were not limited to, a man who sawed off his left hand at work, a man who lost his hand while trying to shoot a hawk, a man who somehow lost two limbs in an accident involving a rifle and a tractor, a man who shot off his foot while protecting chickens, and a man who bought a policy and then, less than 12 hours later, shot off his foot while aiming at a squirrel. Wow, they know how to have a good time in Vernon. They really do. They really do. I'm very curious about the one that involved a rifle and a tractor. Yeah, like sharpshooting. If you're sharpshooting and you take off your own foot, no. On a tractor. No. It's like some weird version of biathlon. Like an agricultural biathlon. This is so, yeah, I don't even, what the hell? What the hell? So Liberty National Insurance took one man to court who ended up with a million dollars of claims paid out to him from between 28 to 38 different companies, which would be over $9 million in today's money. He wasn't convicted, but former insurance agent Murray Armstrong was quoted as saying in the Tampa Times, he was a farmer and ordinarily drove around the farm with his stick shift pickup the day of the accident. He drove his wife's automatic transmission car and he lost his left foot. If he'd been driving his pickup, he'd have had to use that foot for the clutch. He also had a tourniquet in his pocket. We asked why he had it, and he said, snakes, in case of snake bite. Okay, no, no, that makes sense. Florida does have some snakes. They do. He had taken out so much insurance, he was paying premiums that cost more than his income. He wasn't poor either, middle class. He collected more than one million from all the companies. It was hard to make a jury believe a man would shoot off his foot. He would cut off his own foot to spite his banker's bank account? I mean, again, $9 million, I could pay somebody else to wear a ring and be my toe. Sure, sure. Well, what happens when an area becomes particularly risky to insurance companies? Premiums go up? That's right. They go through the fucking roof. And in some very rare cases, they refuse to insure altogether. And that was finally what happened in the Vernon area. However, the story of the little town that really shouldn't have doesn't end there. No, no, because the story of the alleged insurance fraud and alleged intentional maiming was fucking interesting. And so over the years, occasionally a news article would be published, and a couple of decades later, when this happened, the New Yorker wrote a little blurb that caught the attention of a young filmmaker by the name of Errol Morris. Oh, yeah! Now, Morris is best known for his work on the documentary The Thin Blue Line. However, he went to Vernon with the intention of making a documentary called, get this, Nub City, after the nickname given to the city 
by what I can only assume were assholes. I mean, it's not inaccurate. However, in 1981, the year of my birth, there was still enough people or were still enough people alive to be upset about the negative attention that they felt the documentary under the title of Nub City was going to bring. Soon, Morris found the nice people of Vernon turning on him. And when he was interviewing a double amputee who was a member of what was known as the Nub Club. I I can't make this shit up. I can't make this shit up, folks. The Nub Club. Who lived with his former Marine son. Morris had a come to Jesus moment. Or get the fuck out of town moment. (laughs) Yes. The moment started with the former Marine threatening Morris and crested with the Marine beating his ass. So, I mean, these are a group of people who are desperate enough to lop off their own goddamn limbs yep. for money. They're not going to be like, oh, sure, come talk smack about us and our nub club. Yep. He didn't end up in the hospital, but he did realize that pursuing his current movie idea was causing him actual bodily harm. And the cost was outweighing the benefits of the film. And so he made the choice, the very intelligent choice, to just make a documentary about the town itself called Vernon, Florida. That was an odd, lackluster survey of the inhabitants instead of the investigative documentary about possible insurance fraud that I know I still want to see. But he did not end up, to to paraphrase one of my favorite podcasts, The Murder Squad with Paul Holes and... Um, a tall man whose name I can't say out loud because I get all weird. But he was not an irony. That's right. That's right. So Morris was recently revisiting the idea of producing an original story for like either Netflix or a podcast about Nub City that he wanted to do. Since true crime has become such a strong genre all its own. I mean, it always has been really. But the majority of the original amputees must be gone at this point too think so yeah everything mellows with time you know so he should be good and i would either like to listen or watch whatever he produces but i just want one question answered who the hell was the first guy who had an amputated limb that started the whole gore fest anyway because i can't find it and i want to know well, and I wonder if, like, the first person, it really was an accident. Oh, I'm sure. You know, accidentally hack their foot off while defending chickens or watching dogs hump or whatever you do in Vernon, Florida. And then, wow, hey, I got this enormous payout. That's pretty great. And his neighbor was like, payout, you say? Well, I'm not using that foot. And boom, you know? Yep. And that is my story about the little town of Vernon and their alleged insurance fraud. Nub City. That's... That's beautiful. Nub City. That was, wow. That, goddamn, man's inhumanity to man and man's inhumanity to their own limbs. It, what a, what a fun episode. What a wild ride. We're not going to leave you with something weird and depressing. We actually have something useful, something helpful, because as it is getting toward the end of the year, which is a, a municipal gift giving opportunity in December, usually, we thought we would sort of add our own spin on that because, you know, Jeff Bezos has enough of your money. He definitely has enough of my money, especially with this whole pandemic thing. And we thought it would be cool to highlight smaller online businesses that you could 
theoretically spend your hard-earned insurance payout nub money on. And we have two, two to share with you today. So let, let me tell you about it, shall we? Tell, tell away. So the first one is a friend of the show, Sarah Miranda, at the adorably named Magpie Mouse Studios, who makes really lovely enamel jewelry. So you can look all super fly in those Zoom calls you're making. And in fact, I sent Regina a very groovy bat necklace to go with her batted to hell and back new living room. I love it so much. And myself, I got a crow pendant earlier this year, since that's my little print witchery company logo. And also, ha motherfuckers. That's my personal motto in life. And seriously, Sarah is one of my inspirations as a small online business person myself, because, I mean, she's just, she's been such a great presence as a vendor at so many live and in-person art and craft events around the Pacific Northwest for the last number of years. And then she had to pivot so hard and so fast to being an online only shop. And goddamn, she hasn't just knocked that out of the ballpark. And her stuff is amazing. Amazing. And it's just been so neat. She's got a really strong social media presence, which is just fun to kind of look at her process and how she makes all these kind of interesting kind of seasonally related designs and pieces and you can find all of that at www.magpiemousestudios.com and on etsy under magpie mouse studios and seriously do check out her social media follow her on the instagram etc the facebook she is a hoot um in fact i was riveted riveted i tell you this summer by her saga of Birdie Sanders, <laughs> little like little Robiny bird who made yep. a nest and raised two clutches of eggs on her balcony. I mean, she's she's great and her work's delightful. It's classy, it's fun, and just gorgeous shiny stuff. So that's that's number one, Magpie Mouse Studios. And then to kind of go with the more um, kind of dark veil of the mysteries, kind of time of year that it is. Uh, I also wanted to recommend my friend Kate's shop. Seven Coins Devotional specializes in hand-painted refillable candle globes to decorate your altar or for long-term devotional work. So featuring ready-to-ship themes of interest to folk Catholicism, African and Haitian diaspora, as well as Hindu, Egyptian, and pagan pantheons. Can't find your deity, saint, or spirit? We do custom orders. We will work with you to come up with a design you will love. And their shop is www.etsy.com slash shop seven coins devotional and write out seven. So seven coins devotional. And they are offering 15% off to disturbing interest listeners. Use the code disturbing 15 at the checkout and you know what if you have an etsy shop that you would like us to go ahead and promote for you we're not charging for this we respect small businesses we are one yeah we see you we get it and so go ahead and hit us up on any of our social media platforms instagram twitter facebook our email disturbinginterest at gmail.com di underscore podcast or podcast underscore di you can find us pretty easy just 
look us up, Disturbing Interest Podcast. Yeah, we'd love to, uh, we'd love to shout you out. And we love hearing from you. I love hearing from you. Like, seriously, guys, thank you so much for writing in. In this shit time that we live in, because we are on the fuckiest timeline, There are some days where getting your emails or your DMs really make our day. So thank you so much. We love hearing from you. And please share us, spread the disturbing word. We really appreciate how much traction we have been getting because you have been sharing our links, our name by word of mouth on your social medias. And, you know, just remember... We're here for you. We got this. We're all in it together. And you might be disturbed, but you're not alone. Thank you for listening, friends. Remember, if you would like to reach out to us, you can find us on Facebook at The Disturbing Interest Podcast, Twitter at podcast underscore DI, Instagram at DI Podcast, you can find us online at disturbinginterest.com or you can email us at disturbinginterest at gmail.com. Our P.O. box is 70515 Seattle, Washington 98127. Remember to rate, like, and tell your friends and we'll talk at you soon.